Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. The sun is shining and God is still on his throne. We're going to have a good day today. I want to thank all of you that are with us online. We're so grateful you're here from wherever you are, whatever part of the country, whatever part of the world. We're so grateful that you're a part of the service today. And for all of our campuses, welcome Missouri City and Richmond Rosenberg. We're so glad that you are with us today as well. There were three guys who were out hiking and they had a particular goal obviously in mind, but they came upon a raging violent river that was in front of them and they had to get on the other side of the river. There was no choice in order to get to their destination. They had to be able to get on the other side of the river. They couldn't find a way to do it. And finally, one of the three men just got on his knees and said, oh God, I'm asking you to give me the strength to be able to swim to the other side of this river. And immediately, poof, he had all these muscles on his arms and his legs and over his body. He was just oozing with muscles. And he dove into the water and he swam across that river. Took him two hours, he almost drowned, but he made it to the other side. Well, the other guy, one of the, uh, the second guys saw what happened to the first guy and he said, God, I'm going to ask for the same thing, but I'm going to add one thing to it. Give me the strength that I need to get across that river and give me the tools that I need. And poof, he had all of the same muscles on his arms and his legs. His whole body was just oozing with muscles. And he had a rowboat that suddenly appeared and he jumped into the rowboat and off he went. Well, it took him an hour but he got to the other side. Well, the third guy had watched both of these things happen and he decided, I'm gonna pray exactly what the second guy prayed for, but I'm gonna add one thing to it. And he said, God, I need the strength to get on the other side of that river. I need the tools to get on the other side of that river. And I need the intelligence to get on the other side of the river. And poof, he turned into a woman. Now, I knew that half of the people in the room would be really glad for this, this statement. So he turned into a woman and she turned around and she asked the person there, is there a bridge that goes over this lake? And they said, yeah, just around the bend. And she got to the other side in 10 minutes. And I just share the story because I'm just trying to make the statement that men and women need each other. We're in a series on marriage, and we have been for the last three weeks. And three weeks ago, we talked about, I, I shared, what is the purpose of marriage? Why did God even create this? What is marriage about? And we sort of zeroed in on the difference between a contract and a covenant. Marriage isn't a contract. Marriage is a covenant. And what does that mean? It makes a world of difference. Two weeks ago, Eric Wooten was here. He's a Christian counselor. Oh, my soul, he did such a great job. He, he, he talked about unmet expectations, and every marriage has tons of them. Unmet expectations. And he, he redefined the concept to irreconcilable differences. So many marriages are... Um, initiated because we have uh, irreconcilable issues. Well, every marriage does. 
And what Eric did was show us that very thing, but we can overcome that and how we, how we must do it. And he sort of walked us through it. If you haven't heard his message, I, I hope that you'll go online on our website or our app and you'll listen to Eric Wooten. Then last week, Michael Jr. was here. Michael Jr. is a comedian. He's so incredibly funny. I mean, he's the funniest guy. I can hardly believe it. But he is also a deeply committed follower of Christ, and it's very for real for him. So last Saturday, not, not yesterday, but the week before yesterday, this whole worship center was packed, and all these people here, as he, and he was so funny. I mean, everybody's just dying laughing. But in the midst of all of that, on that Saturday night, he and his wife addressed, talked about how do you improve communication in your marriage? How do you deal with communication issues that are really deeper than, than surface things and you don't meet halfway, what you do is you get to the root of the issue. I, I thought he was profound, and I thought it was extremely helpful for marriages. This morning, I wanna to talk to you about why things fall apart. Why things fall apart in marriage. And part of what, at least the beginning part of what I wanna to talk to you about is the five stages of marriage, that every marriage is in one of the five stages of marriage. I've talked to you about the five stages of marriage before. It's been several years. And the reason I want to, I want to bring it up again is because at the end of that, I had so many couples that reached out to me and said, I did not understand this. I didn't understand that I don't have a bad marriage. I have a normal one that I'm just going through normal stuff. And I, I could not understand, I couldn't see that. I couldn't see any sense of hope. But when we got through with the five stages, I realized where we are and there is hope. It was several decades ago that I came across this. And as I was sort of understanding five stages myself, I could really see where uh, Kathy and my marriage was in all of that. It was really helpful and it has given me a chance to really share with other couples a sense of, okay, this is really actually what you're going through and why. I have brought this five stages up to other marriage counselors. Every one of them said, well, of course. Some, they have six stages, but it all sort of comes out in the wash the same. And the thing that I'm hoping for is that you in your marriage won't overreact and not panic. The truth is every marriage can make it. It takes humility. It, it takes acceptance. And it takes both a husband and wife. But every marriage can make it with that, those ingredients. So what is the first stage of marriage? Well, the first stage of marriage is called the dream world stage, and it's the beginning of your marriage. And almost every couple starts out and saying, well, our marriage will be different because we love each other so much. Our marriage will be different because we have such great communication, we know each other so well, well, however you fill in the blank, but our marriage will be different. It's really cautious in those 
early months and even years during the dream world stage. But then you start seeing things about the other person you did not know was there. But it's okay because uh, I'll fix him or I will help her get over her problem. It's not very long until we're in the second stage and that stage is the disillusionment stage. It's where marriage actually starts becoming real. It's where we start finding things about each other that we didn't know and we start working out our plan and our plan's not working. Now the truth is we need this. You can't get to the mature love stage unless you go through the stage of disillusionment. It's all part of it. It's not a bad thing. But there is a sense of fear and doubt that begins to emerge. It's, it's starting to be a little scary. And then you get to the third stage, which is the misery stage. I'm being really encouraging today. You feeling better about your marriage? It's the stage of misery. It's just the big surprise in marriage. It's, it's a time in which, wow, it's becoming more and more difficult. You had no idea. You didn't expect this to happen. It's not all the time. Listen to me. The truth is marriage is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. And you have, you have great days and great weeks and great months and great years. Marriage is wonderful because you have someone you love and that someone loves you. And you're sharing so many experiences together and so many great moments together. And maybe you're sharing children now together. And children, they're the hardest thing in the world, but they're the greatest thing in the world. They bring the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure. And now you're going through all these things in your marriage. Marriage is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. But there are points in time in which we begin to believe that our spouse isn't going to change, doesn't even want to change. Really confusing. I can help you. Can't you see what I am trying to say? And yet... No change at all, or or at least saying they're going to change and then doesn't deliver. And now we begin to argue more than we ever dreamed we would. We really begin to struggle in the misery stage. This is the time that um, the thought enters our mind. Oh no, I've made a terrible mistake. I have married the wrong person. If I would have married the right person, everything would be great, but I've married the wrong person. And what you don't know is that probably your spouse is sort of silently thinking the same thing. But the truth is you married the right person and you are the right person. You're going through the stages of marriage and this is an important time but it's also the scariest time because this is the moment in time in which the word divorce comes up in the conversation. See, if I would just get a divorce from this person, 
and I could then, now I've learned in my lesson, I've learned what not kind of personality to marry. And I, I, next time I'll pick the right person. And then now I will finally have a great marriage. And that's what people think. I just need to get rid of this person and get the right person. It's going to be great next time. J. Allen Peterson wrote the book, The Myth of the Greener Grass. And in his book, he, he makes the statement in, in, in some people's lives, what happens at some point in their life is that it's like their brain shuts off. I'm not, I'm not willing to even discuss the issue anymore. I'm not, I'm not even willing to consider the idea of success anymore. Their brain kind of shuts off. It's divorce and that's it. But he said, the problem is, is that you could be married five times. This is what he says in his book. You could get married five times and every divorce and remarried five times. And every single time you'll be right back at this point. Every single time. Because it's part of the whole process of learning how to love another person. This is where the concept of cohabitation sort of emerged. And I'm, I'm thinking that it was in the 60s, latter part of the 60s. I'm thinking that's when it was. I haven't really researched that. But, but it seems like the latter part of the 60s, the idea was, well, let's just cohabitate for a little bit. It's just sort of trying each other out. Seeing how it works out. In the 70s and 80s, it sort of picked up steam, sort of began to, to uh, coalesce. And then in the 90s, it be, started becoming normal. And in fact, today, if you get married to someone and you don't cohabitate, you don't live with them for a while before, there are other people looking at you and say, what's wrong with you? you? You're not doing it right. But... Look, the cohabitation thing has been going on so long. There's a lot of studies that now have been able to be done on that. And guess what? I've given you the Forbes.com article and it comes to the same place every one of the studies come to. And it's this. Couples who cohabitate before marriage have a higher divorce rate than those who don't. They have a higher divorce rate than those who don't. Not lower. It was, it was all a lie from the beginning. And, and besides that, it, the Bible calls it adultery. And it doesn't work. Sociologist Linda Waite from the University of Chicago did a study in 2002 on 10,000 couples. Now look, if you do a study on 10,000 couples, that's critical mass. You, you can come up with some conclusions at the end of a study like that. And in the study that she conducted, she had uh, um, uh, in the questionnaire, how would you rate or describe, best describes your marriage? And one of the options was life in hell. That's how I describe my marriage, life in hell. She pulled out that group. My marriage is like life in hell. She pulled that group out and for the next five years followed that group and conducted another questionnaire. And what she discovered is that those couples who described their marriage that way within the next five years that stayed together within the next five years described their marriage as happy. So what happened? Life in hell over the next five years, it changed to happy. 
what happened. Here's her statement. Couples shared that mostly they kept putting one foot in front of the other and things began to get better. But I can tell you what actually started to get better. Over the course of those years, they quit trying to change each other. They came to the place of accepting each other. They came to the place of forgiveness over their anger, and they came to the place of acceptance. I accept who you are. And over the course of those five years, it changed their marriage. She also studied those who responded, I'm miserable in my marriage, and got a divorce. And she followed them. And, and she said, uh, what she discovered is that a sliver, it's not wasn't a large percentage, said now their life is better, that they're happy that they're divorced. But she said the overwhelming majority of those who got a divorce after five years were just as miserable divorced as they were miserable married. That it hadn't changed their life for the good, hadn't. More than likely is because they still live with themselves. And so they're still miserable. So what I'm saying is, based upon her study, there really is hope for a marriage that is miserable. And it's because you get to the fourth stage. The fourth stage is the awakening stage. This is when you realize, I can't change my mate, but I can change myself. I can. It's where you come to the place to say, I'm going to stop trying to change the personality of the person that I fell in love with and I'm going to come to the place of acceptance. Healing begins to happen when you choose to truly appreciate the strengths of each other and when you choose to accept the personality and the opinions of the one that you married. You stop trying to change or control that person. You stop trying to dominate that person and you accept them. Now I'm not talking about accepting sinful behavior. I'm not talking about accepting adultery. I'm not talking about accepting a control freak kind of environment. It's just as sinful. I'm talking about accepting a person's personality and their opinions their strengths, and their weaknesses. I'm not going to change you. I'm, I already know it's not going to happen anyway. I accept you. It's the time of awakening. And it's the greatest thing that could ever happen to your marriage. It's just the greatest thing. Because you come to the place that you calm down and you say, I love you. And you love me. 
It doesn't mean that it's a straight line up. It doesn't mean that it's easy. You still, it's mixed up. You still have times in which you struggle. Sometimes it's not, not such great days or even months or years, but you are still, but here's what you know. There is this sense inside of you, it's working. I'm thinking we're gonna make it. It's where the arguments are fewer. It's where the arguments are um, not as long, shorter. Over time, the couple begins to work through their quarrels and come to forgiveness. They adjust. They begin to listen to each other. They begin to build a deepening respect. And then the last stage, the mature love stage. It's not a perfect time either. You can still have times in which you, okay, I, I'm gonna, we're gonna quarrel over this or that, but this doesn't last very long. And there is a sense inside of you, we're gonna make it. We've got this. I love you, you love me. This is a lifetime. It is the mature love stage. The fear about your marriage is over. You have a growing and deepening love that will last a lifetime, and you know it. This is the whole idea of what he was saying, God was telling us in Genesis chapter two, verse 25, and they were both laid bare and were not ashamed. You know everything about me, I know everything about you. And I love you, and I accept you. It's mature love. Here's the thing, you are in one stage but it doesn't mean you lie, you stay there. You don't have to stay there. You can go to the next stage and your marriage can make it. Now, how do you get there? How do you get to this mature love, a love for a lifetime? We choose to build two key principles into our marriage. That's how we get there. Now, what I'm about to read to you, I'm just gonna warn you, is anti-cultural, so don't react. It is against everything you are being, you've been taught from the time you were tiny and all the way today, but don't react. Let me have my say, okay? Here we go. In Colossians chapter three, verse 18 and 19, here's what he says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Okay, that is the, oh my. Wives, submit to the Lord. Now, the last part, as is fitting to the uh, submit to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. We don't even hear that part because we're still trying to struggle through the first part. But listen to what he's actually saying, as is fitting to the Lord. It doesn't mean submit to a domineering man because this is fitting to God. What it means is submit to the husband in a way that is fitting to the Lord. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, the key to understanding these two verses is to understand the definitions of the two key words, and I don't think any of us are surprised by the two key words, submit and love. So let's look at the definitions of both of these. The first one is this, to submit means to voluntarily place 
another person's needs and desires above your own. It means to willingly take second place. The word love, what is its definition? To love means to voluntarily give yourself away to meet the per another person's needs and desires in the place of your own. It means to willingly take second place. What I'm saying to you is that both words mean essentially the exact same thing. So why didn't God make it easier for us in the 21st century? knowing we'd be where we are. Why didn't he just say, wives love your husbands and husbands love your wives? Well, I don't know. But I'm guessing that God uses different words that have the same foundational meaning, but two words that apply that meaning differently according to the need of the mate. So this is my guess. And what do I mean? Here's it, here it is. In most marriages, a husband has the innate need to be respected as a person, as a leader, as the protector of his home. In most marriages, that is just true. This is the need of a man to be respected. In most marriages, a wife has an innate need to be loved, to be valued, to be protected. God uses the word that means the same as the other word, but in the context of male and female, is my guess. Kathy and I, all of our marriage has shared in decisions. We, we, uh, we sit and talk through pretty much most of the decisions that we encounter simply because we are trying to come to a consensus. In other words, there's no dictatorial going on in our home because it doesn't work anyway. There are some things Kathy is far more knowledgeable about and has a greater expertise in than I do. And when we come to those things, I capitulate because the truth is she knows more than I know about that, that's, that topic. There are other topics I know more than she does and she says, hey, I'm going with you. I'm trusting your judgment. But in most things, we talk it out. We come to some conclusion and, and there's not manipulation and there's not dic dictatorial attitude in our home. And it's been pretty easy for us to do this because first of all, I was raised in a family just like that. And so was she. My mother would tell you in a split second that my dad was the head of our home. She would say that without any qualms at all. And then the truth is what they would do is they would talk out their own ideas about decisions and they would make their decision together. My father, I never saw him be dictatorial in our home ever. I saw my dad love my mom and they worked out their decisions together. And I saw the same thing in Kathy's family. And I guarantee her mother's name is Tony or, or dad, uh, Billy. And I would all, I, I guarantee you, if you ask her mother, uh, who is the head of our family? She'd say it's Billy for sure. But uh, Billy was never dictatorial. They always talked it out. They always came to a consensus on decisions. 
They saw the strengths and weaknesses of each other and they pulled together to make the best decisions. So it was very easy for Kathy and I to do this. This is what we saw modeled in front of us. Those two words, submit and love, the basis of those words is selflessness. This is, this is the whole idea of the two words. Selflessness. The act of putting your mate above yourself. The key to our success in marriage is after God, God is number one, but after God to become mate-centered, not self-centered. Why do marriages fail? For the most part, it, they usually fail because of a me-centered environment, either by one or both. How you turn the marriage around is to become mate-centered. But if one or both is, I, I only want what I want. I want you to do what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. <laughs> you won't ever get anywhere. And you won't ever have a loving marriage. You're going to have a suffocating marriage. Coming to a place of genuine love and putting the other person ahead of yourself. It's the key. And there's three things that help us do it. The first one is simply this, to yield our rights and needs to God. It is to come to a place to say, I put you ahead of me and I don't expect you to meet all my needs. The Bible doesn't say that your spouse was designed to meet all your needs. The Bible says God was. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God, I am trusting you to righteously meet my needs. I'm trusting you to take care righteously of my needs. My wife wasn't designed to meet all my needs. My husband wasn't designed to meet all my needs. But God, I trust you to do that righteously. Second of all, then I let go of the stronghold of my anger. What happens in marriage is that when another person is not meeting my needs and, when I, and I think they should be, but they're not doing as I expect, what happens is, is that a person then begins to be angry in their heart and they build up that anger and the bitterness. Oh, we kiss and make up, but there's a part of that that didn't happen. A part of the forgiveness that didn't happen. And over time, it just keeps adding up and adding up to the place that there is a deep-seated bitterness that emerges in our heart. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that it is possible for Satan to build a stronghold inside of us. A stronghold is simply that a part of my self... There is a, 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 it's a stronghold is like a fortress. It's like Satan has built in this aspect of my life such a strong anger and bitterness and resentment in my heart. It's as though he's taken over at least that part of my life. It is a stronghold. And I've never really let God deal with this. And Paul warns us about strongholds that Satan builds in our life in which we have given ourselves so much to anger that we built a deep-seated bitterness. 
This is what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 is saying when it says, be careful that no poisonous root of bitterness springs up in you. If it does, it will bring damage to your life and ruin your relationships. So how do I help build health into my marriage? The first thing is I stop asking my spouse to meet all my needs. My spouse wasn't even designed to do that. I turn to God. Second of all, I let God tear down those fortresses of anger and resentment and bitterness that I've allowed to be built into my heart. I truly come to forgiveness. I truly let it go. And the third thing is this, then concentrate on meeting your mate's needs. I know probably the name Zig Ziglar doesn't mean anything probably to most people in this room, and that's okay. He, he passed away about 11 or 12 years ago, and he was 86 when he did. But Zig Ziglar was a guy that really loved the Lord, really walked with God, and he was sort of a, sort of a spokesman on positive living kind of thing. And he had a saying that went like this. You can have everything in life you want, if you'll just help enough people get what they want. Uh, it's exactly the opposite of what we'd expect. You can have everything in life you want if you scratch and beat out the next guy and, and manipulate to get what you want. And that is what we hear in culture. But Ziegler said you can have everything in life you want if you'll help enough people get what they want. And where did he get such an idea? He got it from Jesus. It's Luke chapter six and verse uh, 38. Give, and it'll be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over. Shall others pour into your lap without measure you measure, it'll be measured back to you again. And what Jesus was simply saying is, you get it started. You give. You give. And give and give and give. And eventually, not immediately, you give to meet the needs of others and eventually what happens is God makes sure that your needs get met. But you start it all rolling. What I'm talking about is switching the marriage to be, what am I getting out of this? To what am I giving? How do I meet the needs of my wife? How do I meet the desires of my wife? How do I meet the needs of my husband and the desires of my husband? And I trust God in the process to make sure my needs are met. The goal is to make God number one in my mate, number two in my life. So let me tell you a story and we're done. I'm changing the names of the people, but so Emily and Paul were married. They had a great marriage. I mean, they're going through the five stages just like every other family, but got a great marriage, have two little kids, and, and uh, she is a nurse, he is an engineer, and they're doing really well. They have their ups and downs just like everybody else. He had these goals in his career. He wanted to keep 
going up the ladder and making more money and more money and he had all these ambitions he wanted to accomplish in his career and he was on the track and then something happened Emily got ill it was not life-threatening but it was life altering at least for a while not for the rest of their life uh, she had a deep-seated fatigue she couldn't she couldn't control that she had pain she was in the hospital several times they knew the problem, it was just getting to the other side of the problem that was the issue. And so what was taking place is that everything was going fine, everybody was working hard and all that, but suddenly Emily was not able to pull that weight. And so Paul kept trying to help, keep things going, still trying to upwardly mobile in his career, and it just wasn't working, they couldn't keep up. And one day, Paul came to a conclusion. This point of time in my life is not about me. It's not about any of my goals or ambitions. This point in my life is about Emily. He made sure that they had the support they needed to keep, take care of the kids' needs, and he poured everything he could pour into his wife. He talked to his boss, he got to work at home, shift some of that so that he could be at home more often, and he made sure. Every doctor's appointment, he was there for her. Every time that she was in the need, he was there for her, and he took care of her the best he knew to do. It's not about me, it's about her. And what happened is she saw that. He didn't have to articulate it, she saw it. And it just deepened her love for him. It gave her strength to keep going, just emotional strength, just to keep going, to see her husband treat her this way. And there was a day she got on the other side. But what happened when she got on the other side, what happened when they got on the other side is that something had been taking place they never even dreamed. They were going through the five stages of love so much faster, five stages of marriage. And by the time she got well, they were already at mature love so quickly. And what caused it to happen was his decision to give himself up to meet her need. What I am saying to you is your marriage can make it. Your marriage can make it. You're just going through normal. You don't see that because everybody, not everybody actually admits what's going on. And by the way, don't believe anything you read on Facebook because that's all garbage. It's not true at all. Everybody is going through these stages. And you're going to make it. What's got to happen is that there's got to be humility. There has to be forgiveness. There has to be the asking of forgiveness. There has to be acceptance. A willingness to put the other person ahead of you and you're gonna make it. And I'm challenging you this morning.
instead of panic, instead of falling apart, recognize what God is doing in your marriage is a good thing and you're going to get to the other end. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would move in hearts today to say yes. God, this is what I want. I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and I'm going to keep going down the process of acceptance of my spouse. Not sin, but personality, decision-making, God, I'm going to accept my spouse. And I'm asking you to change my heart. Bring me to forgiveness. Bring me to acceptance. And oh God, I pray you would move our marriage to mature love. And God, I am willing. Father, I pray that you would move in hearts today all over our church and those that are watching and listening online, that you would bring healing to homes. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.